The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. all my life I've been fascinated by wind. I remember when I was a little child, my dad took me uh, hiking in one of the mountains in New Hampshire, and we went up on one of those uh, fire observation towers, and you could sleep up there at that point, and I remember going out with him in the middle of the night, and uh, we were just standing on this platform, and I heard the wind blowing through the ravine near us, and it was a sound unlike I'd ever heard before. I'd heard wind before, but it was just a deep, rich, full-throated sound, like a three-dimensional sound. And I, I was captivated by that, and I've never forgotten it. Sadly, recently, we've seen the incredible destructive power of wind with these hurricanes that have ripped through Houston and Florida and, and the Caribbean islands, hurricanes Harvey and Irma. And we, we can see the devastation. You see photos of this and, and just the power of invisible things of of air molecules that are massed and moving in one direction. We're told that a fully mature hurricane is the most powerful event on earth. Nothing's even close. Millions and millions of cubic feet, even cubic miles of air moving in one direction, 100, 125, 150 miles an hour. I remember back seeing photos in 1992 of Hurricane Andrew picking up a, a school bus and turning it upside down and dropping it on top of a two-story building. I've been reading about uh, Orville and Wilbur Wright and, and how they put together this, uh, this airplane, went down to Kitty Hawk in our state, and uh, they flew it at this heavier-than-air craft, first time in history. thing weighed 900 pounds. Now a fully loaded 747 weighs 900,000 pounds. thousand times heavier. Air lifts it off with no problem at all. Every moment of our lives, we're surrounded by air molecules that are pressing on our skin 14.7 pounds per square inch. Cumulative force of almost the weight of a small car at every moment pressing. We don't even notice it. We can barely even feel it until we get on an airplane and take off and our ears start to pop with the shifting air pressure. Or you go in an ele elevator in a tall building, if it goes really fast, you can feel it too. Other than that, we don't notice Maybe uh, some of you are, are, are sensitive enough to notice subtle changes in air pressure, but most of us aren't. Now these invisible air molecules, the movement of mass, quantities of air, all of that constantly reminds me as I think about it of the power of Satan and demons in the world. Invisible powers of evil in the heavenly realms. And the continual effect of Satan and his demons on us at every moment in our toilsome lives here on earth. Satan is called in Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. It's an interesting expression, the prince of the power of the air. Angels in other places are likened to winds. As it says in Hebrews 1, 7, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. 
We are so used to demons, I think, and their continual afflictions that we do not feel the effects they have on our bodies, on our minds, on our spirits, our morale, physical health. And I've said this before, and I'm still waiting for that day. I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime. But if we could have one day completely free from demonic effects and influence, it would be like the greatest day of our lives. We'd wonder where we got all our energy, why we're so euphorically happy. Our obedience would be immediately easier in every respect. Someday, we're not going to just have one. We're going to have nothing but days like that. At last, when the devil and his angels are cast into the lake of fire, we will be free forever. But we're not free yet. And we need to be aware, we need to be mindful of the power of Satan and his demons. The influence they have on our lives. We need to be mindful. In 1986, Christian novelist Frank Peretti published a novel called This Present Darkness. In which he sought to elucidate through fiction... Uh, continual warfare that goes on between demons and angels on planet earth. Warfare that's hidden from our eyes but has a continual impact on current events and on how we live. Now, admittedly, Frank Peretti's theology is somewhat shaky at points and his imagination runs wild at other points, especially when he starts actually describing what the demons and angels look like and going into aspects of their battle, their warfare that I would say, putting it gently, go beyond Scripture. But given our normal materialistic outlook, which I described last week, namely materialism, the idea that atoms and energy, physical energy is all there is in the universe, and we kind of are swimming in that secular sea all the time, and we're not hardly ever, I think, mindful of the devil and demons, we need a, a vast correction. Maybe not so far as Peretti would go, but let's just stick with Scripture. And as we read Revelation 12, and we have unveiled before us in this book of unveiling, this apocalypse, this unveiling of things that we would not know any other way except that Scripture teaches it. We have Satan, this red dragon, unveiled before our eyes spiritually. And not just him, but his angels, his demons as well. It is clear that Scripture wants us to be very aware of the existence and power of the devil and his demons and their schemes. It says in Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. So last week we began to walk through this chapter. We're diving into the middle of it this week, Revelation 12. And we look back at that point on Satan's evil actions at the time of the birth of Christ when He acted through King Herod when Jesus was born, moving Herod to slaughter all those babies in Bethlehem. Now this morning we're going to complete walking through this chapter and we're going to look back also at Satan's original fall uh, from heaven, which we started to do last week, but also to look ahead at possibly, taught in this text, 
a future and final battle in the heavenly realms and a fall from the heavenly realms to the earth right before the end of the world, as some scholars believe. And then clearly his vicious, relentless attacks on the people of God on earth. So battle in the heavenly realms and battle on earth, spiritual warfare. So we're going to peer behind the veil that separates the physical realm from the spiritual, and we're going to see by faith the true power behind the events on earth, the things that face the people of God on earth, a malevolent, intelligent, powerful enemy. All right, so we begin by looking at Satan, this powerful but defeated foe. One of the points of of this chapter, really the point of everything in redemptive history is show the greatness of God, the greatness of Christ. So the final lesson in Revelation 12 is how great is our Savior to be able to defeat such a powerful foe. So we want to just end up worshiping Christ and kind of hiding behind him and standing behind him as he does battle for us because we could never face such a foe alone. But we're not alone. Jesus is infinitely more powerful than Satan. So the central focus in this chapter is Satan, the red dragon. Look at verse 3 of the chapter, Revelation 12, 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Verse 3. Clearly identified for us in verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. We have no wondering, no mystery about who the dragon is. We're told directly who he is. Verse 9. And this massive drama unfolds here with key figures. Think of the great dramas ever in in human literary uh, endeavor or in movies, different dramas, dramatic presentations. Think of Shakespeare's tragedies like Hamlet with all of its character development, his inner workings and all the drama that goes on with some of these Shakespearean plays or Mozart's operas like Don Giovanni with this, this spectacular sets and this incredible music and this dramatic story. Or even my favorite movie, Ben-Hur, 1959, Charlton Heston. MGM spent the most money they'd ever spent that any, any studio had ever spent on sets. This is before computer graphics made it all easy and very unreal. Um, but I guess that was kind of unreal in a different way. But there was a time in which you could stand somewhere on planet Earth and see those sites. It wasn't just inside a silicon brain. And there was $15 million for sets and all that very dramatic story. Let me tell you something, none of the human dramas that that movie uh, writers, screenplay writers, or Shakespeare have anything even comes close to the drama of this chapter. It's a very dramatic chapter with key individuals, key figures. We meet right away the woman in verse 1 and 2. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. And she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now I interpreted this last week as the nation of Israel kind of exalted or perfected to some degree. The heavenly Zion. A woman who gives birth to Jesus and a woman who gives birth to children who obey God and follow Jesus. But specifically zeroing in on the, on the aspect of Israel because I believe that there is a future in redemptive history for the physical descendants of Abraham, called the Jews. And there's a focus as Jesus talks about that in Matthew 24, running for your lives from from Jerusalem, those who live in Judea, when they see the abomination of desolation in the the temple. There's a Jewish setting to that. 
pray that your flight will not take place on the Sabbath. There's a very Jewish setting, so I think it's reasonable to see this woman from whom the physical descendancy of Jesus came as Israel, but exalted in the heavens with glory. We talked all about all this last week. And the fact that she has other children refers uh, to the woman Zion, the heavenly Zion that we saw in Isaiah many times. Isaiah 66, 8 is an example. Isaiah 66, 8 says, <clears throat> Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet, no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. So there's Zion pregnant giving birth to many children. These are believers. So it's that perfected Zion image. So that's the woman. Dragon, we've already identified, and plainly, just by reading verse 9, we know they're talking about Satan, the devil. The male child in verse 5, we saw last week, who will rule the whole world with an iron scepter, based on Psalm 2, is definitely Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, the king of the world. And in Revelation 19, he has that iron scepter with which to strike down the nations. This is definitely Jesus, the male child. And then the woman's children are believers in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. They don't just have to be uh, Jews, but Jew and Gentile alike, believers in Jesus. That's the woman's children. So that, those are the actors in this drama. And what goes on, the storyline in the drama, is Satan's m vicious, malicious attacks against Christ and his people and his desire to take over heaven and earth, to rule the universe through his wickedness, and so he's attacking Christ, he's attacking God's people, but fails again and again. Remember we saw last time, he's a five-time failure in this chapter. Everything he sets out to do, he fails at. Very powerful, but ultimately a failure. So that's what's going on in Revelation 12. Last week we saw Satan's failed attack on the, on the male child as he stands in front of the pregnant woman about to devour her child as soon as it's born. But he's not able to, and the child is snatched up to God and to his throne. And this represents, as I've already said, the physical attack on baby Jesus when he was born, how all of those babies were slaughtered. And we shouldn't just see a human side of that, but there was definitely a demonic, a, a devilish side of that as he was trying to kill Jesus before his time. That was last time. Now we're going to look at war in heaven, verses 7 through 12, Satan cast down. And the simple assertion is made in verse 7, and there was war in heaven. And look at the combatants in verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So we have a division among the angels in heaven. We have apparently good angels, righteous uh, angels, and wicked angels. And they're fighting in the heavenly realms. And they're led by the dragon, by Satan on the one side, and Michael on the other and so that's this battle going on. In Jude 9, Michael, one of the only, only two named angels in the Bible, the other being Gabriel. Jude 9, Michael is called an archangel, and the word ark in the Greek means ruler, angel. So he's a ruler angel, an authoritative angel, in charge of other angels. And he's fighting against Satan. He is revealed uh, in Daniel 10 and 12 as a special protector of the nation of Israel. Now, I've thought all week long, trying not to go to Frank Peretti lengths, but speculating biblically, if you can do that, on the nature of angelic warfare. What is it? I've rejected the idea of angel hospitals or angel wounded. They're out. There's no wounded on either side. So what then is going on? They can't die. 
And they each know that the other can't die. So what is going on? The best I can make of it is I stay very close to the text and try my best to, to stay close to the text. It seems that what's happening is both angels and demons intend to do things toward people. They move out with a purpose and then their opposites try to stop them or thwart that purpose. That's the nature of the warfare. So the devil and his angels have evil intentions toward human beings and try to move out to do them. And they find themselves blocked by good angels who stop them from doing what they want to do. Conversely, the good angels move out to do something God sends them to do and they find themselves blocked by powerful demons. And they're unable, for a time at least, to get through and get done what they want to do. And so, for example, on that second half, you see an angel dispatched to Daniel to bring him a message and answer to prayer. And he's delayed for 21 days because the prince of Persia stops him. So a demon more powerful than the good angel thwarts him and stops him until Michael comes and helps. I have a hard time not seeing that in a football kind of analogy where Michael comes and blocks the prince of Persia. And the guy gets, gets through. And he's able to finish his mission. So I think there's that issue of, of force going out, for good or evil, blocked or thwarted, turned aside. That's the nature of it. This is the best I can make. So I'm not seeing feathers fluttering to the ground, angelic feathers, or, you know, angelic limbs hacked off, or any of that kind of thing. I'm just saying, seeing wicked intentions blocked by good angels, good intentions blocked by wicked angels. That's the battle. And the omnipotent God of the universe seems to kind of stay back and let him battle it out on roughly equal terms. But then he moves forward, as only he can do, to influence this battle and achieve his purposes in redemptive history. Everything's right on schedule. Now, if you disagree with that at some point, I will be very interested to listen to you. If you do believe there are angelic hospitals, or angelic dead, or angelic resurrections, or any of that, you are way past scripture. Um, but I'd be interested in hearing your uh, speculations. This is the battle. There's a battle in heaven. And the key thing here is Satan, in verse 8, is not strong enough. Amen? He's not strong enough. Michael is stronger. Maybe not one-to-one. -one. Could very well be that Satan's the most powerful uh, creation God ever made individually. But cumulatively, the devil and his one-third of the angels is not strong enough to defeat Michael and his two-thirds of the good angels. And so he loses. He's not strong enough. And he lost his place in heaven. It's too weak. And his punishment is strongly emphasized by repetition. They lost their place in heaven. That a great dragon was hurled down. He was hurled to the earth and all his angels with him. So it's repetition. So they lose their place in heaven or hurled down to the earth. Now how is Satan described in this text? Well he's called the great dragon. Like a picture of the primeval power of chaos, one commentator put it. Massive force for chaos and wickedness. He's called great because of his enormous power. I mean, you just stop thinking think about the power of the devil. I really believe the devil ultimately has crafted every non-Christian mental scheme or religion or philosophy that has ever allured people away from Christ. They all come ultimately from his mind. That's the nature of his thoughts. Wicked, but brilliant. Powerful. Far beyond our intellect. Very strong. And he's called that ancient serpent. The word ancient means it harkens back to the beginning of history. The word serpent takes our mind back, of course, to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve fell into sin because a serpent talked to them. And so this is the devil's nature. He's a puppet master. 
He, he gets behind creative beings and makes them do things, and he stays hidden. But here we find pretty clear evidence that the serpent in the, in the garden, we knew it all along, but the serpent was the devil, talking through that snake. <clears throat> He's called also ancient because he has affected every era of redemptive history. Every single era of our brothers and sisters saved by the blood of Christ has had to fight the devil and his angels. He's called the devil, diabolus, uh, which means deceiver. Uh, Satan, the word Satan, the Hebrew means accuser or adversary, especially in a legal sense, like in a court trial. He's the accuser, the prosecuting attorney. And it said that he leads the whole world astray. We know how Jesus, how, how Satan, when he tempted Jesus, said on that mount, mount of temptation, the whole world has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to, Luke chapter 4. And also 1 John five nineteen says, we know that we are God's children and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So he rules the worlds in that sense, the wickedness. He leads the entire world into sin by temptations. He then accuses sinners before the throne of God. Specifically, he leads the world astray from devotion to Christ. That's his top priority, is to deceive the world about Jesus or away from Jesus. So it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age, another name for Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So his focus is to get people to not see how glorious Jesus is, how good, how beautiful, what a powerful Savior. He blinds people about Jesus. So this is the one whom Michael and his angels defeated and threw down to the earth. And then in verses 10 through 12, we have a celebration of the victory. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. So there's great joy in heaven after the battle is won as Michael wins and the devil is thrown down. The heavens just shout in praise and worship. It's a single loud voice. So maybe a mighty angel, maybe Michael or, or a worship angel shouts out in a loud voice. And the voice celebrates the coming of the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of His Christ. All of these words showing the greatness of what we're, we're going to experience someday. The, the kingdom of God in Christ on earth forever. We're looking forward to that. But what's specifically rejoiced in here is that Satan, the accuser, accuser of the brothers, that is Christians, men and women around the world, is cast down. Satan is particularly wicked and particularly hypocritical, if we can use that expression, in that he orchestrates every temptation and allurement that lures people into sin. He orchestrates them, temptations, 
And then once we actually commit sins and violate God's law and violate God's conscience, we actually do sin, he turns around and goes all righteous on us and starts quoting the law and accusing us before God. And in that half, he's right in a sense. We have committed these sins. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He knows every careless word we've spoken. He can guess at the intentions of our heart like he does with Job. And he stands there and accuses us day and night before the throne of God. Now it says these Christians overcame Satan. (laughs) Praise God. By their faith in Christ, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their witnessing, I think would be a good way to look at it. The word of their witnessing, of their testimony. Jesus conquered Satan and the world for us. Amen. John 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's our conquering king. And he destroyed him who held the power of death, the devil, by his death and resurrection. Jesus destroyed him. But he speaks to us, his followers, challenging us to overcome. He's commanding each of you, brothers and sisters in Christ, be warriors. Overcome him. To each, you remember the, the letters to the churches, Revelation 2 and 3? At the end of each one of those letters, he promises, to the one who overcomes, I will give treasures and rewards. To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. We are called on to overcome Satan. Now, the greatest way you can overcome Satan is come to Christ. Believe in Jesus. That is the greatest way to defeat the devil. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he is God. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins. Believe that you're a sinner and you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And if you come to that place in your life, you have overcome the world. You are a conquering victor. Says it in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So you get, you get the gold medal of the Olympics. At the end of this marathon race, you get the crown if you just believe in Jesus. Just coming to faith in Christ and having your sins forgiven by the blood of the Lamb, you have overcome Satan. And Paul said in Romans 8, 35 through 37, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed. We, we are being slaughtered, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb for ourselves. Our sins have been taken off of us and transferred spiritually onto a substitute, Jesus. And he died a bloody death that we deserved. He died under the wrath of God, under the law of God. He died. And his righteousness transferred to us and we stand pure and holy in Christ. That's how we conquer the devil. But beyond that, we conquer by preaching the gospel, by by the word of our testimony. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. So we are destroying Satan by preaching the gospel. 
You can, you can move the kingdom of darkness back a little bit more this week, even tomorrow, even today, by sharing the gospel with a non-Christian. And if they hear and believe, the, the kingdom of heaven has advanced just a little bit more. You overcame and you conquered the devil by the word of your testimony. And it says here of that second aspect of the ministry, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Oh, how glorious is the history of the church, of brothers and sisters in Christ, of whom this can be said. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. I mean, think about it. Think about the Roman persecutions. Think about Perpetua, that uh, Roman highborn lady who came to faith in Christ, was arrested and accused, and she said to the procurator, while I live, I shall defeat you, and if you kill me, I shall defeat you even more. I can't wait to meet that lady. I mean, that's a great statement. Or then Polycarp, who was threatened with being burned at the stake. And I, I think about the horrors, just what it would feel like to die that way. But he was unafraid. For 86 years I've served him and he's never done me wrong. How could I betray my king who loved me? 86 years. Or John Huss in the 15th century, again, about to be burned at the stake. He said, what I, what I preach with my lips I now seal with my life. By the way, you don't have to write your material right before you die. The Holy Spirit has already written it for you. They didn't come up with these things. The Holy Spirit said, say this. And they say these great, courageous things. And then they go die gloriously. And they have these welcomes into heaven with this, these victor's crowns. The crown of the martyr. And they come into heaven. And the gospel is advanced by the seed of the martyrs. As they shed their, li- their, their blood for the lives of others. They're, they're doing it so others can come to faith. They didn't keep their their faith in Jesus secret. They didn't love their lives too much in this world. Or the Apostle Paul who knew in Acts 20, I'm going to Jerusalem and going to be arrested and beaten and probably killed. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. What happens to me doesn't matter. However, the end of time, I believe, final three and a half years of human history, the number of martyrs will go up exponentially. The amount of blood shed violently will go up exponentially. The amount of courage it will take to stand in the face of Satan and the Antichrist and his henchmen will be indescribable. The level of courage it will take to be a Christian in those days will be incredible. But the Lord will be up to it. He'll make his people up to it. And he will rise up in them through the Holy Spirit, their level of courage and commitment to Christ. And the church is going to go out gloriously, but it's going to be a bloody time. Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it forever. So what about you? What about me? This is very convicting. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How much do we shrink back from suffering? Whether in the internal journey of holiness or the external journey of gospel advance. We come to a difficult moment and we shrink back and sin. We come to a difficult moment we shrink back and don't say anything about Jesus. We should all be convicted and just take our guilty souls up to God and say, Oh God, I'm so weak. 
I am, I am not like these courageous brothers and sisters. Make me courageous. Make me strong in the moment of temptation to be holy for you. And make me strong in the moment of witnessing to be, to be courageous and bold for you. Well, verse 12, there's joy in heaven and woe to the earth. Look at it. Verse 12, he says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. It's one of the few biblical or scriptural statements about the inner workings of the mind of the devil. But we're told here he is angry, and why? He's angry because he knows. Does he know he's going to lose? Well, he knows his time is short. And the woe to the earth and the sea is because of the rage of the devil. Now, when did this battle happen, or should I ask, when will it happen? That's an interesting question. Has it already occurred? It's possible that this is going back to the beginning of time, and this battle happened before Adam and Eve were in the garden. And there's indications, as I said last week, from Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. God created Satan as a beautiful cherub, put him in the garden. He became impressed with his own beauty, his own wisdom and power. Decided, Isaiah 14, to try to take over heaven. Said, I will ascend, I will make myself like the most high. And both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 used the cast down language. You're cast down to the earth. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So there was some casting down of Satan to the earth long time ago. However, it is possible that there's going to be a yet future battle in heaven and that this is talking about that yet future battle that's going to occur in heaven. And there it has to do with access that the devil has to the throne of God to accuse us. As Job 1 talks about, he's roaming through the earth and the the sons of God, the angels, appeared before the throne and Satan was right there. Oh, where have you been? Well, I've been roaming through the earth. Job 1. Job 2 also has access to the throne to make accusation. He accuses Job not of sin, notice, but of his true motive in being such a good God follower. But that's what he does. He's accusing. And you also see access in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Incredible. Look it up. But there we've got Satan depicted. Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, behold, I have taken away your sin and I'll put a rich garment on you. And then I said, Zechariah is like, he can't keep himself in. I mean, the prophets are like this. I want to get involved. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. What a picture of our salvation. What a picture of Satan being totally discredited and cast down as he tries to accuse one of the Lord's elect, as he tries to accuse one of the Lord's followers. But he's got that access And he's there before the throne day and night accusing our brothers and sisters around the world. It could be that Revelation 12 is talking about a yet future battle, the final battle in the heavenly realms between the archangel Michael and Satan, and that he's thrown down right before the end. And that brings us to that three and a half years where he chases the woman for 1260 days. 
One thing I find about these sermons, it does not seem to matter how much I short th- shorten them in my office on Thursday, it still ends up like this. Eschatology takes a long time to explain. But the 1260 days, the time times in half a time, that's code language for the final phase of human history from the book of Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel. We'll get into that, God willing, next week. But woe to the earth, because the devil's been thrown down to you, and you're about to go through the worst time you have ever had. The devil is filled with rage. He's known his time was short in that it wasn't eternal all along. That the lake of fire was meant for him and his angels. But now it's down to a very, very short amount of time. So that brings us to the final phase of this chapter. War on earth as Satan pursues the woman and her children. It begins in verse 6. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. So after the woman, Zion, gives birth to the male child... Uh, he, the Christ, is snatched up to heaven where the devil cannot reach him. So the devil, not able to reach Christ, focuses with his rage on Christ's followers. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Jesus, you can't get at the head. He's up in heaven. So they attack. Satan attacks the body. He attacks the woman who gave birth to the male child. And she's fle- she flees into the desert for 1260 days. That final three and a half year period that we'll talk more about next week. The devil focuses on the woman. She's still on earth. Look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So verse 6 shows from the woman's perspective her protection in the desert. Verse 13 shows the other half of the equation, the devil chasing her. See? So he chases, she flees to a a protected place. The desert represents a place of refuge or protection, kind of like Elijah, who's running from wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, goes out into the desert and he's fed by ravens and he's sitting by a mountain brook and, and then later he flees again and he's given supernatural food in the desert and protected. It's a place of protection where the devil can't get to him, where the wicked ruler can't get to him. Verse 14, the story develops with a little more detail. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Book of Revelation is hard. It's challenging. But let's just keep it simple. I think it's just a metaphor for speed and protection. The the wings of an eagle, it's just she's able to keep ahead of her, her pursuers. She's fast enough to keep ahead of her pursuers. And if you don't think speed matters, look what Jesus says. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of in the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea run for their lives. That's about how you can sum it up. Pray that your flight, running, will not take place in the winter, on the Sabbath, how dreadful it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers. mothers. Read it. It is a terrible time of running. You don't even have time to go down in the house to get anything out of the house. That's how fast you have to run. So the idea is the dragon is going to chase the woman. Now my idea is that this is Israel immediately disillusioned, unable to accept at that point that Judaism, animal sacrifice, will not be reestablished, that the Antichrist has taken over the temple and begins to persecute these monotheists, these followers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they start running, and in there somewhere... Witnesses are able to get to them and share Christ or they finally realize Jesus is their Savior. Now they become Christian Jews 
and they're running for their lives and Jesus is going to protect them. That's the image I have. But the idea of an eagle is one of hovering in wings and protection. Lots of psalms about this. He will cover us with, our wing, with his wings and with his feathers, etc. This is just an image for a mother eagle lifting up her young, lifting, her up, lifting them up from the surface of the earth, carrying them out of danger. Protection. For a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. So then the devil spews a river. Look at verse 15. Out of his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. So, you know, we usually think of a fire-breathing dragon. This is like a river-spewing dragon. Doesn't seem to be fire here, but water like a river to sweep the woman away. I really think the best way to interpret this is an army of antichrist forces that go out into the desert to chase her. I mean, if you look at a long army, especially one that goes on for miles, it looks like a long river. They're all on the road, not going off in the hills and the whatever. They're going to stay on the road. It looks like a long serpent. And this image is the very one given to us in, uh, in Jeremiah 1, speaking about the Babylonian invasion from the north. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see a pot boiling with water, tipping over. And when you see that, the, what comes out but this hot liquid that pours and it becomes a clear metaphor for the Babylonian troops spilling down from the north, destroying Jerusalem. We have the same thing, a river flowing. So they're actual, I think, probably soldiers that are sent out by the Antichrist to follow the fleeing Jews and slaughter them. But God controls heaven and earth. Verse 16, the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Reminds me, of course, of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram who rebelled in the days of the Exodus against Moses. And... (laughs) Moses said to the people, said, if something natural happens to these people, then you know that God's not speaking through me. But if something unnatural happens to them, you see something you've never seen before, then you'll know. If you see the ground open up and swallow them alive, and they go into the ground swallowed alive, then you will know. And that's exactly what happened to those rebels. And it seems like that's what's going to happen here. The ground opens up and swallows this river that flows from the mouth of Satan. So he's thwarted. That brings us to the final phase, verse 17. Now understand, this fleeing from the abomination of desolation is focused on Judea, focused on Jerusalem and Judea, running out into the desert. One of my kids was asking me, like, what, does everybody have to run? We all run for for our lives? Well, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. It's focused right there. But there are believers in Christ all over the world. And so the women's children are not just those running out into the desert, but they're just all over the world, and, we're, and they're identified. Look at verse 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, not just those out in the desert, but those worldwide, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the rest of the woman's children represent other believers on earth during the time of the Antichrist who will be the focus of Satan's vicious attacks, and many of them will die martyrs' deaths. And it's going to get to be so bad that it will precipitate the second coming of Christ from heaven to rescue his bride. He said, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So Jesus will return to rescue his bride and establish his eternal kingdom. So this brings us to the end of Revelation 12, which focuses on Satan. It ends with him standing by the seashore about to call up what we're going to see in Revelation 13, the beast from the sea or the Antichrist. God willing, next week, we're going to take a little bit of a break and do more of a topical sermon on the topic of Antichrist as an introduction to what we're about to see in Revelation 13.
So that should be uh, God willing next week. So applications, first and foremost, I've already said, flee to Christ. Flee to Christ now. The devil's active now. He is skillful. He is powerful. He is deluding people who do not trust in Christ yet. He's deluding them, blinding their eyes against Jesus. Maybe God brought you here today that your eyes would be opened and you would at last see the glories of God in Christ. You would see how beautiful, how powerful and majestic he is. God sent his son, our Lord and Savior Jesus, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He did signs and wonders. He healed a man born blind. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He walked on water. He spoke to the winds and the waves, and they obeyed him. He raised a friend, Lazarus, from the dead who'd been dead for four days. And all of these signs and wonders show his compassion, but they also show his power, his identity. He is God in the flesh, and he came to save sinners like you and me. So I'm urging you, while there's time, shake off the chains of deception that are around your soul. Shake them off and come to Christ. Find forgiveness in Christ. You can overcome the attacks of the devil by the blood of the Lamb, by believing in Jesus. Now, you Christians, you've already done that. You fled to Christ, but the devil still accuses you. It says day and night. Do you ever feel that? Do you feel the accusations of the devil? You feel so guilty for what you've done. The devil means you harm. The devil means you harm. The Holy Spirit means to heal you. You have to be discerning between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusations of the devil. They're talking about the same things that you did. You sinned. You violated your conscience. You don't deny it. You know you've said some things, done some things that you shouldn't have said or done. You left undone things. God wanted you to work in certain ways and you've not been doing it. Perhaps you've been spiritually lazy. Maybe it has to do with your quiet time. Maybe it has to do with witnessing. Maybe there's things going on in your marriage. Maybe it has to do with what you do with the internet in secret. Maybe it has to do with how you're spending your money or not spending it. But you know you've sinned. You've violated your conscience. You've violated the law of God. The devil's right about that. But he's wrong about you. And God is going to vindicate you someday by casting him down into the lake of fire. You will be completely vindicated against this devious accuser. But he is so smart. However, if it's the Holy Spirit, what he's meaning to do is heal you. He presses your conscience, shows you the word of God, and brings you to Jesus. He brings you again to the atoning work of Christ and to confession of sin. As you heard earlier, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So overcome the devil's accusations by the blood of the Lamb. And then overcome him by the power of the Holy Spirit in you to live a holy life. If you don't want to confess something later this week, then don't do it. Be holy. Put sin to death by the power of the Spirit. And put on your spiritual armor. You know, it says we're not unaware of his schemes, but so many of us live like we're unaware of his schemes. Be aware of what the devil's trying to do in your life, in your marriage, in your work life, in your thought life. And do not love your lives in this world too much. I fear this is probably the biggest sin we struggle with here in the West. The affluent West. The comfortable West. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Do you love your life in this world too much? Well, start in some sense, as Jesus said, just quoting him, hating your life in this world a little more. Don't look for easy, comfortable times in this world. Become unpopular at work. I mean, there's right ways to do it and wrong ways to do it. 
It's like, oh, here he comes again. Here she comes, going to say something about Jesus. I just know it. But isn't that what we're called on to do, is to become in some sense unpopular. There's ways to do it. Be shrewd as snake. There's a way to do it. But talk about Christ. Do not love your life so much in this world that you shrink back from serving Christ fully. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the things we've learned today about the activities of the dragon, of the devil and his angels, the demons. Uh, We are assaulted every moment by things we cannot see, chains we cannot see, magnetic attractions. We, We feel the pull, but we can't see them. Temptations to sin. Oh, God, help us to stand firm and give us courage. Help us to think like New Testament people, to think like future inhabitants of the new heaven and the new earth. Help us to be bold and courageous warriors for you. Thank you that you have defeated the devil on our behalf. Help us to live like conquering kings and queens. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.